Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, uh, Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned and listen to this conversation that we had with Dr. Suzanne cook Croder. She got her PhD from Harvard, taught there, and she's one of the developmental psychologists most important in the world in helping us understand this essential idea of how we develop as human beings. She's a sweetheart, too, and a nature mystic and a dear, dear sweet woman you're going to love and respect a lot. Welcome to Deep Transformation. Self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. My name is John Dupuy, and this is my friend and colleague and brother, Dr. Roger Walsh, and Suzanne Cook-Croyder. A lot of your work started out, well, what you became famous for in, in the integral world was developmental psychology. And Roger, in a conversation a few weeks ago, he said that he thought that developmentalism was the most important thing that happened in psychology in the last 50 years. And that's really something, that's quite a statement, because a lot has happened in our field or in my field anyway, psychology. And uh, you were right there at the cutting edge, basically saying that that adults continue to grow. You don't get to be 21 and you're fully formed and take it from there. And that is, in all its permutations, is a huge realization. And the other thing we want to talk about, and this is a place besides developmentalism that we want to talk about is, Suzanne, your practice and your love of nature and how you think that fits into the picture in what we're talking about on this podcast of deep transformation and healing the human spirit and helping us to become the people that we can develop to be. So Roger, do we have anything you'd like to add in, in introducing Suzanne? Oh, well, first a personal thank you because Suzanne, you've been such an influence on my life. I came very late to the recognition that of the possibility and importance of psychological development throughout adulthood, or at least that potential. And for me, it was, it was mind-boggling to realize that, contrary to everything I'd been educated about, psychological maturation didn't have to stop when the body stopped growing. And it opened up a whole new world. And for me, it was actually very, there was a very challenging transition as I got into started to study your work and other, other researchers in the field of adult development, because I could feel a certain resistance to it. And it felt like it's too much. And I felt like I was being called, to, I'd been playing two dimensional chess all my life. And I was being called to play three dimensional chess to add a vertical dimension. And yet when it finally opened up, it literally felt I had this experience of my mental space expanding and opening in, a, in vertically in a dimension just to, to encompass 
the vision of what you're offering, a vision of a world that could be seen in multiple different ways at different developmental stages and and each each offered its own way of viewing and understanding and relating to the world and to other people. And that was just mind-boggling for me. I think of it as one of the biggest mental shifts or openings that's happened for me in in a decade or more. So thank you very much for that, your work. And of course, I'm <laughs> I'm only one of umpteen people who've, who've benefited because you really did pioneer the exploration of not only adult development, but you pushed our exploration into some of the later stages, some of the further possibilities that had only been glimpsed in Western psychology or often not glimpsed, but had been in in some cases pointed to in some of the great contemplative traditions. And you, another contribution you made was you to, to bring a beginning integration between cutting edge of contemporary psychology, particularly its developmental openings and understandings, and linking those to some of the the recognitions and realizations pointed to by the great spiritual tradition. So it's just such an enormous contribution from which I and so many of others have benefited. So thank you. And it's a delight to have you here to talk with. Yeah, and I would just like to add on on a personal note that, Suzanne, I found you to be such a delight to hang out with. And uh, you've got a a gentle, lovely sense of humor. And uh, you're very sweet. And you have this deep humility that, frankly, reeks of holiness in my book. I mean, and the deeply spiritual people I've known in my life, it always seems to be one of the qualities that really, really comes through and... You know, and, and with all your accomplishments and everything, you're you're very grounded and and a kind, loving, and humble person. And that is just that means a lot to me. So I just wanted to throw that in there. So thank you. And I think we all need to be humble because we're all standing on shoulders and generations of generations of others who have got us to the place that we then can perhaps move something a little further, but it's not yeah, it's not. It's not a, I wished more people had that feel or that sense. Yeah, recognition of our interdependence and uh, mm-hmm. the way in which, yes, none of us can do, can do it alone. You've both spoken to your love of nature. And I know, Suzanne, you've, you've actually explored a variety of paths and practices over your life. Most recently, I know you've been studying Zen, but before that, you did many years of TM, Transcendental Meditation and Kriya Yoga. You've worked with John's organization and his his offerings of I Awake Sound, the use of particular sound entrainment to foster uh, psychological opening. So you've done a lot, and yet you say you keep coming back to nature as your primary teacher. Say say something about that. Because in my experience with any school, they have sort of dogmas that they have sometimes had for centuries. And teachers are just human beings in my view. I have met Satguru, for instance, in India. And yet when, when we went and listened, it felt, it didn't 
touch me. It was things he probably said hundreds of times. And so even there, supposedly has been back since 2000 or for 2000 years or whatever, the de- detail, it just didn't touch me. And the teachers I work with even now seem to be having their human moments, of course. But nature doesn't have that. Whatever I see or learn from nature as a teacher seems purer. And I know that whatever I then interpret or project on it is my projection. There is no confusion between one and the other. It's pure. And with teachers, there's always the issue of, you know, what are they blind to? What are they attached to? What are they? And beautiful work. I mean, often they do everything they can to help their students, to to gain strengths and insight. I'm not saying it's not good. I'm still participating, but I prefer nature because of its purity and its lasting beauty. Can you talk about your experience? I mean, if you had to talk from an inner inner quadrant, if you will, what 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 do you get from nature? What 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 does it do to you? What does it do that the, the teachers and the words couldn't reach? It reminds me viscerally by everything that happens of the transience of life, of cycles of life, rather than the linear sort of Western perspective we have with including evolution. We don't really yet know. We have a lot of evidence, and yes, there is evolution, but there's also lots of indigenous knowledge that doesn't quite seem to go that way, that has other ways of understanding reality. That is of interest to me, and nature seems to be more in tune with that, just the seasons, the cycles, the, the life and death at the same time, everything that is alive, at some point, will be fodder or food for somebody else. It's just seems, it just appeals to me more. And of course, you can question the appeal, anything you like, according to Ken or dislike, you know, could be a, uh, something to question. And yet you stand in a millennial-old tradition because so many wise people throughout the ages have recommended nature as one of the great teachers and healers. And the shamans mm-hmm. retired to the wilderness for their some of their journeys. The Christian monastics, the early desert fathers retired to the desert. The Native Americans, of course, have their vision quests. So... So again, one finds a, find this re- recommendation in so many sources and so many traditions. So clearly there's a, there's a deeper recognition here than any one of us. And so my hope is for this conversation even to just inspire more people to actually use nature, not like a tourist. You know, you go and see and then take a few pictures and then then you look at the picture and that's it. But to really take it as an exercise. And when we were teaching live, now since COVID, we do everything on the internet. But we used to have the nature teacher. There's a particular practice that all the students had to go through or go through. They usually enjoyed it. I can talk about what that is, the steps to it. It's a three-to-one process, but instead of for the spirit, it's for nature. 
your nature, understanding nature, taking something and loving it so deeply until you become one. There are several steps. That, to me, is more important now than doing theory at the you know, edge of, of theory. Also, I become critical a bit of developmental theory, not per se, but it being such a subset of much wider and more possibilities that, again, other nations in Africa, for instance, or indigenous folks in Australia and here in, in the United States and Canada have ways of connecting to nature that are not as separate. And as we are in charge, I don't know, I've blamed the Christian Bible or the, the Old Testament with its genesis for that because it's clearly instruction there, make everything under your dominion, everything that flies and crawls and, and lives. And that has been really taken seriously. We are taking everything. We take exploit nature. We harvest its treasures. And there is some concern for me in that, some sorrow as well. And you, it sounds like you mentioned very briefly a three-to-one process, which is something from the integral movement. But, but perhaps you can say a little bit more about that, because I think what you're pointing to is what are the most skillful ways of that we can relate to nature? There are many ways. Some people intuitively just love it. Children, watch a child. If you let them be, they just enjoy, you know, they just talk it, they just enjoy it, they eat it, they <laughs> do anything. But the a process that, that I've used uh, is the three to one, where three means first I encounter something in the environment as an object, as a scientist. And then you study it from every possible angle. How old is it? When was it for this thing, this type of thing first appear on the earth? Where will it end up? Most natural things end up in the ground again or become dust or get eaten. Uh, who lives there? What, everything you can possibly find out about the object. And initially, you just send people out and say, go find something that speaks to you. Maybe you have to spend a, quite a while to walk around and see who says, hey, look at me. I have something to tell you. And then that, that once you've chosen, you go back to that particular thing in nature could be a stone I had somebody once do the air between Denver and the mountains <laughs> I mean people choose incredibly interesting things or just a, a wilted something that lies on the beach it doesn't matter what it is it doesn't have to be something gigantic or important it is what calls you so then you have that conversation not yet the conversation you just observe it as an as an object as a scientist, learn everything you can about it. And the next step is you actually go back and bring your question to this object and expect to get an answer. Of course, it won't answer uh, verbally, but you just sit with it and ask it. And maybe it even asks you some things. That's the interesting part as well. 
You have a sense it's asking you. So it's a dialogue. It's the two-step, the thou, making the other a thou, not a it. And the third step is really to become one with it, to feel it's whatever is going on and it becoming one with you. There's no separation anymore. I've done the exercise even with some of my clients, only special ones that I know have a deep affinity for nature and for more experiential things rather than cognitive. But it, it's powerful and every time you do it, there's something new, something new to ask, something new to get answers to, or no answer is also an answer. If it's silent, then you that you know, generates a whole other inner conversation. I've, I've had encounters in the will. I did a lot of vision quests too. And just going out there and praying and fasting. I, I found, uh, Roger said that, that in a, the other day that in a retreat, when he goes on a retreat, it takes you about three days to kind of get through all the stuff, you know. And, and I found that too in the wilderness. At about After about three days, I would start to get in the zone. In other words, I was home. Okay, the wilderness became my home. And it's like, oh, God, there's such a great, a great peace in that, you know, because in our modern, postmodern worlds, we're, we're lost a lot, existentially just lost. And getting back to the magic or whatever, the medicine of the wilderness is extremely helpful. I had a, a teacher and a mentor, Wallace Blackout. He was quite a well-known Lakota medicine man. And, and somehow, you know, just serendipitous events. Um, I started becoming his guy on the West Coast. Whenever he'd come to the West Coast, I would pick him up and drive him to all his things and sweat lodges and all that. We'd be pretty close. And he was very, very kind to me. And I was in a real mess at the time. A lot of bad things had happened. And I was just kind of, just trying to figure out if I was going to stick around. But the Lakota tradition as filtered through him, as it came transmitted through him, was something of great, great beauty and very inclusive, obviously, of nature and of the transcendent at the same time. But it was all right there, you know, and all all beings were uh, were spiritual beings and had honors and the fire and the water and the rocks and the coyote and the bugs and the bees and the birds and, and cougars and the mountain lions. It all was accepted within the, the circle of our relationship. And some place, some some people act ethically when they feel they belong. In other words, if you really belong to your family, you know, and you feel that strong, you're not going to act in a way that's going to dishonor or hurt your family. It's like, no, I can't do that because, see, I have this family and I'm accountable. Well, I, I the same thing with with nature. When we become initiated into understanding that, and and all the the veils or all the structures that that keep us away from that, it's it's a profound homecoming. And I, I'm not sure that we can quite ever be the same after that. And and I've I've someone who struggled with with the darkness, with depression a lot in my adult life. And I've always found that nature was there to act as I don't know. It just seemed to draw out the darkness and and reconnect me with something alive and real. And life is sacred, and life is precious. And life matters, and so does yours. So dust yourself off and, you know, stand up and, and walk the path you're supposed to walk. And anyway, I just wanted to throw that in. But he was a great, a great man. And he was 
one of those spiritual spiritual figures who was not just oh he's just native he was also transcendent he would he could have he could have hung out with any spiritual teacher in the world i mean he had that kind of deep knowledge and in his hands it was a great monotheistic thing because there was the great spirit wakantanka that moved through all things yet everything else was sacred too you know and there were spirits and, and anyway it, it was a beautiful cosmology and in my my exposures and, and vision quests and sweat lodges and other ceremonies uh, of, of the Lakota, I, I discovered that as an experiential reality, and, and it deepened my, my love and my connection to uh, fantastic mother and all the inhabitants on this planet. So, Can I ask you something? You said that nature in, in some ways can heal or uplift you. Have you ever, like myself, in deep depression, actually just wanted to disappear into nature. If he'd done with it and and just become part of it. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. Okay. Just wanted to check. It's not always just uplifting. It can also be so vast and so deep and one can feel so lost. For dimension, how in this day and age we can of, often feel lost that it seems almost an attraction, a calling to come disappear in me. Yeah. And, and learn to walk in me. You know, there's a way to walk. The more time you spend in nature, the more time you spend out sleeping under the stars and in the deserts and the canyon and the forests, you, it just begins to inform you, you know, and there's, there's a different kind of awareness that, that arises from that. And uh, it is an ancestral awareness. We know all our ancestors were there, because we're here talking now, <laughs> you know, that meant that they somehow pulled that off and knew how to do it. It's one of those things that, you know, starts from our early development, but we need to re-own that as our foundation. And without that foundation, essential foundation, somehow we're, we're very, very lost and we just don't get it. That's right. And we get programmed by culture so heavily, so relentlessly that it's often forgotten that once we're through with school and language and everything, we have a mindset that almost doesn't allow for that anymore, that feeling of connection. That feeling both, of course, we're great as human beings, at the same time, we're minuscule little drops in a big ocean, time-wise and just space-wise as well. So I think often of one of my most cherished memories of the Milky Way was in the outback in Australia, lying on my back and just seeing the Milky Way. It, 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 it's indescribable, the, the, the sense of awe, I think that's the best word, that I often experience when I'm in nature. And it doesn't even have to be nature, nature. It can be completely concrete things. The other day I was pouring some condensed milk out of a can into a dish I was cooking. And then I noticed how it had these ribbons, maybe half an inch thick ribbon that made a beautiful pattern. And I was thinking of what kind of mathematics would describe that. And it was just beautiful by, by itself. Or a, or a pattern on a floor that is random, but somehow you know, um, what's it called, beton, um, concrete floor can be beautiful or can have things in it or mold or something 
that suddenly makes it awesome. That gives you that moment of, oh, look at that. Isn't it an interesting mm -hmm. story that tells us? Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's not just outside, it's inside as well. It sounds like you're now talking about a, a, a particular sensitivity that, that we can bring to each moment. To, yes. And that if we're present, if we're really paying attention, each moment is, is rich beyond, you know, beyond grasping in any little concept. <laughs> yes, yeah. I do talk about that. And how much it gives me. It doesn't have to. The thing is, beauty is not beautiful in the traditional sense, but anything that, that engages in that way that yeah. can be ugly as well. I mean, something can be beautifully ugly. Mm -hmm. Even the words to make beautiful and ugly is already a separation. So, this is reminiscent of, of for example, the, the, Training in mindfulness that one, you know, that a central part of uh, some meditations is just bringing a sense, open sensitivity to each moment. And one of the amazing things you find out is, is that you never have to be bored because every moment is exactly so that. <laughs> that is fact, absolutely part of the thrill. And then you have to ask yourself, am I a thrill seeker in that way? Well, but I think you're talking about something. You're talking about something different. You're talking about it feels like, feels like an openness and a receptivity to the to each moment and and, and a willingness to appreciate whatever whatever arises in each moment. Yes, <laughs> there's a beautiful saying that <laughs> boredom is feedback that we're not giving full attention to our experience. Probably true, but I'm talking about being a seeker who constantly does not want to, who kind of excludes that, I hope boredom can turn into stillness, where you don't need mm. any kind of stimulation, but you're still, you're grounded. But I tend, I, that's just my suspicion, I tend to go for the excitement, for the, <laughs> no matter what it is, you know, even pain can be exciting in some ways, uh, something to explore. It's just I'm talking about my own tendencies and mm -hmm. the questions I have around it because I'm aware of them. So then I also question it. Mm -hmm. what, what am I not feeling, seeing, thinking that I, or not, you know, how do I not, not, not do any of that? And sometimes you can in peak moments, of course, or in meditation, everything falls away. But, you know, everyday life, I'm a seeker for this kind of beauty and adventure and thoughts and interpret everything. So, yeah, well, the sense I get of you is you're just rejoicing in the, in the richness of, of each moment of life, which, yeah. which sounds wonderful. It yeah. is wonderful. And in Zen, which you've practiced, there's the idea of idea of one can you know sit and have you know dramatic experiences but but in the if we look at the 
across the sequence of oxoding pictures, that wonderful portrayal of the stages of spiritual development <laughs> at the end. It's like entering the marketplace with help bestowing hands and this wonderful, wonderful commentary. Even the wisest cannot find them. But these people are just so ordinary. Yes. And that's the thing about the developmental theory and about humility. In the end, they're ordinary, no matter how non-ordinary we feel we are or pride ourselves we are. In the end, they're just ordinary human beings. We do all the things we have to do. We eat, we poop, we you know, do all those things that everybody else, and in the end, we all die. At least I think we still do. <laughs> um, so, so that is part of the ordinariness to just recognize it and therefore also love the ordinary. Mm. People at all stages are in their own right. They have, they do their best they can with what they have, and the sort of the the developmental push to have everybody get along the trajectory to me has some issues. I, I grew up with a seriously mentally retarded sister as an older sister. So I was around that all my, you know, early life, my upbringing. And she was beautiful. And she made when she was later, after my mother died, she was an institution and she made a difference in that institution. She elevated the, the discourse uh, for the whole thing, because there were women there that were really from very rough environments. And she would stand up and say, we don't talk like that. And, you know, it, it was amazing. I, I, I want to pay more attention to what people at all levels actually give, good people. Because mm. you can be very smart and even test very high, particularly on a cognitive test, and not be a particularly kind or generous or compassionate human being. Or even a useful human being. You know, somebody that's giving back to, you know, to the collective good, to their people. Well, I would say theory that advances, whether it's true, or, you know, totally good or not, is, is always something that can be developed further so it's a contribution even if it's wrong yeah and it turns out to be inaccurate or that there are errors in it it still helps it's still a form of helping but i'm looking at a different kind of helping that has more to do with how shall i say that with your presence yeah. with how you deal with others how you see them and support them that I have seen in my life at all at all levels. Yeah, and, and maybe, maybe we're we're you know there's a few capacities that we haven't looked at seriously enough, you know, to add to all the different skills that we look at in different lines of development and integral theory. And what about uh, what would be would it be uh, nature intelligence? Do you have the capacity to join with the natural world? And uh, that's yeah. something. That you know if you have good teachers and and nature if if you feel drawn you can learn it on your own but is is that something that 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 is cultivated and talked about and you know can be measured the line of just compassion which i think what you're talking about you know and and you know in the teachings of jesus at least you know 
that's a whole story, but he was always for the poor and for the downtrodden and for the, you know, the prostitutes and the drunks and, you know, just the people that society was, was completely. Yeah. And uh, I think our relationship to those people has, has a huge reflection on, on who we are and where we're at. And, and if we're extremely gifted, you know, we have gifts and we can excel. And, and I mean, that's a wonderful thing. We should, we should go as far as we can, but do we lose, do we lose touch with the earth? Do we lose touch with the, with the simple and with the kind and with the humble. Yeah. And I, I was working with a, a client one time and he was really, really smart and very successful. You know, you know, he learned, he said, well, after a few weeks, I think I've learned everything you have to say, teach. And I said, you said anything else I've got to figure out? I said, well, yeah, don't be an asshole. Okay. So when you go into the gas station today, you know, or really treat that connect, connect with kindness if you go in the grocery store with the small people and he, his jaw was just hanging open and I, go, I'm, I said I'm not, I'm not i'm not kidding you know this is oftentimes oftentimes i find god in that way it's, it's remarkable and i would say that is perhaps one of the these potential benefits of being at the later stage that you actually can talk different languages you can actually go to the post office and talk to the clerk about of course i talk about beautiful stamps but it doesn't matter you can connect on that level you don't have to use any of your abstract vocabulary or anything like that it's really as you say just an encounter that makes probably both people feel more appreciated than not when when most people treat persons in those kinds of occupations just like just functionally not not as as an encounter i like what you said about that advice yes mm-hmm. i would give it too and i found in the south you know i'm a, i'm a, i'm a child of the south my mother was from mississippi my dad from louisiana born and raised in texas i'm a mount of southern as you probably can get, but they're very, they love dogs around here. And I found that as a way to open people's hearts. And I have this beautiful dog, which is just my, you know, my best friend. And, and uh, she kind of sleeps on top of me at night. I mean, it's, it's like, anyway, we're pretty inseparable. I notice when I, when people, when we connect with the animals, all of a sudden, all of, you know, Trump this or politics or, you know, all of that just goes away. And there's these moments of openness and, and pure love and, and, mm-hmm. and where we just connect. It's, 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 it's really valuable and it's really beautiful. And, and then people, they're no longer abstractions, you know, every, 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 every human being is a universe. You know, every human being has value. Every, every human being has a, is something very sacred that makes it, makes it, Simple and very complicated at the same time. The yoga of of joining, the, the yoga of humility, the yoga of compassion, the, the yoga of just just joining, and you can do that with animals too, or squirrels in the trees, and and even cats. Yes, I said. Oh, even- cats especially, <laughs> not just dogs. I'm a cat lover. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm more of a dog person, but yeah, I've, I've definitely bonded with cats in my life. Yeah, isn't that something? Isn't that something? It makes it makes maybe the sin that you're talking about. Suzanne, it's getting lost in abstraction. So we begin to lose our connection with the earth and humanity, if you will. And all of the people, yes. And it's easy to get, particularly when you're gifted with a relatively smart mind, it is actually easy to get lost 
in the stratosphere, as Lavinia called me once. She said, you're just in the stratosphere, and I kind of smiled. There's nothing you could do with. Jane Lovinger was the inventor of the ego development testing, the way we do it with a sentence completion test. And I was trying to work with her, but she wasn't very welcoming, <laughs> um, which is okay. It was a good lesson. A lot of the discussion has been about the about nature as healing and it feels important to bring in in the recognition that this may be more important in our time than any time in history, given that we are conducting this unprecedented, worldwide, uncontrolled experiment in which for the first time in human history, the vast majority of people are living indoors, divorced from nature, under artificial lighting, artificial spectra, artificial time time sequences, surrounded by urban noise rather than nature. And we are only just beginning to discover what this does to us, but there's a whole, the whole fields of eco-psychology and, and environmental psychology and so forth. And the evidence is it's not, you know, it, it has its, it has certainly has its benefits. Civilization couldn't go on without it. And there are costs for all the way from children learning less effectively in in these envir- environments to patients in hospitals who take who uh, those who have a window which opens up up to nature need less pain meds they heal quicker they get out of hospital faster and all the way through to late life where cognitive disabilities uh, that come with some people with old age are exacerbated when they're confined in artificial lighting and environments etc so there are so we're divorced from nature to an extent we just have never been before. And of course, it's not new. Uh, you know, a century ago, or two centuries ago now, Wordsworth wrote this beautiful poem, Getting and Spending, We Lay Waste Our Powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away. And how much truer now, two centuries later. So in some ways, what you are both speaking to is is a timeless recognition or intuition that being in nature is important to us, but it's also a healing corrective to the over overemphasis or dis, further divorce from nature of our own time and the destruction of nature. Of course, that's a topic we haven't talked about, but our very uh, very survival as a species and our ecosphere may is very much at risk. So you're pointing to something which is very important for for yourselves and for individuals, but also is something crucially needed on a larger scale at this time and may be vital for even for, for the survival of civilization. And yes, you can even go further and say, so what? So what if this is in, in long cyclical times that are possi- another possible way of looking at the mystery of existence? It may not matter. I mean, I, the hardest thing for people, it's hard for any of us to contemplate our own death. And then to contemplate or talk about the demise of, of human beings as a, as a species is, is even... A thousand times harder for people to 
get anywhere near or close to, I think. And there are very few places where you can even contemplate and talk about it. There's, I have no solutions. I think maybe we have on, a, a more of a realist. I think maybe we have gone too far already. Maybe there is no return. We can all in our own little lives, we can do what we can to offset the damage, we, the harm we might do, but it is not enough. The whole system is the, the Western economic system is geared towards control and more and more and all of those kinds of things, and they're not going to stop because they can't even imagine. They are not even aware of their mindsets. They're not even aware of how the economics of the West, actually this doesn't even matter whether it's democracy or communism, they're all based on the same kind of rapacious acquisition type of thing, more and more power, more things, more consumerist, you know, it's, it's relentless. I listened to a, a thing this morning about how this price gauging in children's Christmas toys, I mean, something that was $10 is now $50. And they showed some of the things they're selling. And I was, a, again, appalled for the pure junk, all mechanized, so children can't even do anything they can invent anything with it it's just already prefixed and you're supposed to buy it and make the child then supposed to be happy with it total nonsense i mean to me it's insanity not just nonsense and they they, they had some suggestions how people could still get the toys and i said why don't you just not buy any take your children for a walk or around, you know, have them roll down a hill or all of you. It just seemed so, so brainwashed. Yes. And yes, we, we live in the biggest cult of all, culture. And part of what nature seems to do is allow us, the, allow us to settle and rest and at least partially fall out of that, that yeah. trance every day, of everyday life. And experience that sense of wonder. I think that's, that's often I wake up and I say to myself, I'm still alive, amazing. You go to bed, you don't actually know what happens most of the time. You don't know what's happened when you're asleep. And then you wake up and you say, look, I'm still here. Another day, whoever, however much time. But that is also a miracle. All the things the body does, the heartbeat that just goes on normally. I mean, it can have trouble sometimes, but it, it can breathing. Your brain is doing its things, including dreaming and non-dreaming. And everything is just am amazing. Digestion. Isn't it marvelous how it works? We put food in and it processes it and throws out some and keeps some and keeps us alive. It's, it's yeah, every moment is in some ways miraculous. Uh, miracles everywhere. Yeah. Yes. It, so, so maybe this raises, you know, I'm meaning focused. I'm a six, right, on the Enneagram. And so, but, but how do we, 
you know, and we've been interviewing people and talking to people about the metamodernism, Suzanne, I don't know if you know that. I and it's, do uh, know Frank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and one of, the, one of the things that came out of one of the main books was Hansi Freinach. That's a noon diploma. But anyway, he, he talked about Bildung, which is developing human beings. And when I studied German literature, we had the Bildungsroman, you know. The, yes, the, the, the development roman of how young people become grown up. Becomes the man. So how do we cultivate human beings? How do we, and, and you mentioned in your, your, your email when we were uh, kind of planning this thing, you had this beautiful part about virtues and, you know, kindness and courage and, and all the things it means to be a human being. How do we... How do we, we cultivate that in ourselves and in our children? And how do we use a nature as part of the initiation into being a, a human being that knows its place, has gone through his initiation and has found his path and knows what he's here to do, whether it's to serve his family or to serve his country or to serve the earth or whatever it is that is revealed to him when you get out in nature and say, you know, grandmother earth, grandfather sky, please, without your direction, I'm lost. And I don't want to be lost. You know, I, 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 want to, I want to live my life in a good and noble way and, and not do a lot of damage and be a blessing. And when it goes to time to lay my body down, they'll be able to say, well, yeah, we're better off that he showed up. You know, thank you. And that's about as good as, you know, as good as it can get. Yes. We, and also I sometimes think to be consumed by life. The invitation is to be here. And really use everything you have in, in that way to be consumed by life, not by consumerism, but by life. <laughs> yes, it, I make a distinction so because I think the virtues and values can be instilled at any level. You can start with little kids, mostly also first initial course by modeling it. I do feel that it is somewhat dependent on privilege to be able to go in nature and have that experience. There's just many, many people don't have a way or an opportunity to do it in the traditional way outside nature. Spiritual schools, meditation can probably train you to find that inside to some degree. But I would say I'm also aware of the privilege that we have, that I have a choice to live where I live. That's different, but virtues could be can be taught everywhere, and they're be they're found everywhere. You can go in a very poor area in in India, for instance, and see happy children playing in the dirt, completely having no toys, inventing things, playing, and and you have a sense they're actually happy, they're enjoying themselves. When you see our children who are surrounded by tons of toys and technology and unless we give them some opportunities to be wild again just un <laughs> wild I think is the right word that that we've lost the wildness Suzanne I'm I was struck in in our correspondence prior to our meeting today in which you described the evolution of some of your interests. And one of the things that struck me was, you know, after a lifetime of, of researching development and uh, various sci sci fields of psychology, you said that what well, you are now intrigued by what it means to be, a, a quotes, a good human being. Mm 
And I'd love to hear your understanding of what that is. It's a question to me, not an understanding yet. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> it seems, as I said, some people seem to just have a benevolent influence on the environment. They may not be very high on eco-development, but they're high on, on certain basic values that are ancient. Confucius talked about courage and wisdom. I mean, these are not new things. But to help people to do more of that, and there are several research projects underway where we actually, part of the mandate is to find practical ways to instill those kinds of values. One is with the Templeton Foundation, a fairly large project where they, we, I don't know, developed the, in the development goals. And my only concern about this is they are fairly Western. They don't include enough of indigenous ways of looking at things. They still keep that separation. We are going to teach. We are going to help, you know, which makes it not uh, dialogue in some ways. Or not, let's see what we can learn from the other side. It's We have these things, beautiful things to offer. But it's a, it's a large project. And, and the other one is in, in South Africa, with Integral Africa, where we have dialogues about a different understanding of self that is, again, the Ubuntu is the word most people have heard of, that has a, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it, since I'm so thoroughly Western, <laughs> but I have experienced it. It is not a separation. I am because of because you are, and you are because I am. And there's not this, and we share. There's abundance. We share. We don't have to grab and hold on to things because I know you will share. If, if I'm at the loss, there will be somebody else in the community will will share. That's just how we do things. And I think in some of the American Indian traditions, that's also the case. That. So I'm applauding and I'm working with these things. And at the same time, I wish they were a bit more global, more aware of their own European centrality, what we call weird. You probably heard that term, W-E-I-R-D. Let's see, Western, educated, industrial. Let's see, R, what's, uh, I forget what the R Rational, rational. And uh, developed, yeah, okay. Yeah, so so culture matters. And what do you, Suzanne, from your looking at, you know, you've devoted your life to the study of human maturation. And part of that maturation is clearly the, the maturation of, of virtues. Uh, it's yes. clear that these things don't come online full blown, that, that we, can, we can experience or taste and express them to various degrees at various uh, levels of maturity. What's your, what could you, would you say about the, the practices for fostering virtue? The first and foremost is really having models, 
people who never see that you can grow up in a war-torn zone in a in a camp and perhaps never see it and then there's always the exception the, the kind people in concentration camps or courageous ones and then the same again in these environments but they're the exception and they make a, can make a huge difference to a child, let's say, who does experience even a little bit of kindness. Or in a really distraught, dire environment, poverty here, uh, if you have one adult around you, not your own family, maybe that uh, somebody may be imprisoned, one of the parents, the other desperately trying to survive, or, well, you know, all the, the dire stories we hear, but you may have one aunt or one somebody who, or a teacher that provides you that kind of faith in you and in your goodness. That will, that will make a difference. Now, I don't know that I think they're trying to create curricula for, for school to help introduce values and virtues and I hope we, we managed to find some good ways to do that early on, not, not necessarily even with adults. <laughs> They're hopeless. <laughs> I know I'm just teasing, but yeah, it seems like they have much more impact if you start with the little ones. And how do you see the, the virtues relating to different developmental stages throughout adulthood? Because one of the things I've taken away from your work, and I've taken a number of seminars with you now, is the appreciation that you know, the stages are not a, a be-all and end-all, that just because one matures through certain developmental stages does not necessarily mean one is a, a, a better human being in some ways. And so, but there see, or does seem to be some relationship or some correlation between Yes, and awareness, the later the stage, the more flexibility and awareness probably is on, or ideally is on board. I always have to repeat stages are idealizations. There's no human being that fits a stage, you know, like that, a stage like that. It's just they're, they're abstractions, theoretical abstractions from a lot of data, yes, but still abstractions. Later is more flexible probably can extend more, more compassion to those who are not at the same level. But it's only an ideal. Many later stage people seem to be fairly harsh with earlier stages. Um, things like, I, I, of course, as a linguist, I kind of laugh a little bit when people say, I want to be authentic. And I say, well... Aren't snake authentic, more authentic than any human being can ever be because we're always fooling ourselves or deceiving in little ways to get a better self-image of ourselves. A snake is just a snake. It bites when it needs to bite. It eats. It, it's just pure. It's totally authentic. So you can always argue about words and the use of words and how they become important at some levels. But everything is about, in our culture, especially about success and goals and purpose and, and those kinds of things. And with some clients, I dare to say, I have no clue what my purpose is other than to live every day 
as well as I know how. Mm-hmm. And and that's it. That's enough. And one of the things I've taken away from your teaching is that I came to, into your seminars initially thinking, okay, yes, more developed equals better. And uh, <laughs> you rapidly disabused me of that. <laughs> and I'm still trying to do that because the field, like the last 10 years since the CCL, what's his name? That's one of the issues getting older and have a very hard time recalling names. There <laughs> Anyway, they have now, he wrote a, a crucial paper that said vertical development, that's the word that then was sort of first came on board, is the, one of the, the most important of 10 leadership aspects we have to consider now. And there's huge efforts everywhere to get people to get to later stages and beautiful stuff. I'm not saying it's not good, but they are not questioning that later and higher is better. They tend to just assume that it is so. And we, we will see. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think, I think the train, I say the train has left the station. It's, it's almost, we are really in over our heads, as Keegan would say, in that sense. All technological means that we rely on to fix whatever is wrong are fundamentally the wrong way to go. Well, you're raising a very important issue there, Suzanne, and that is that is that our, our world and our lives are becoming increasingly complex and the dema- cognitive demands of simply navigating uh, contemporary life are growing enormously. And you quoted Robert Keegan with his ideas, uh, his, he had a book in over our heads, the idea that these of daily life are so, so great now that for many of us, it's literally more than we can handle easily. And so there is, there does seem perhaps there is something to be said for what can we do to foster development, foster maturation of increasing capacity for, for cognitive complexity and, of course, for increasing capacity for virtues of, and capacities of all kinds. Say something about this mismatch between the demands of everyday life and our, our capacities to handle it. I'm still trying to get a sense of how we got it ourselves into this mess. A lot of it has to do with the industrialization and with the technological striving to solve, to control everything by more technology, by more whatever it is. It's always more, more, better, faster. (laughs) No computers. When I started out with my first computer course, we still had to punch in the code into these cards and then feed the card to the machine, a big, huge, you know, machine in the room. And then when you made an error in the grammar of the uh, programming language, which at the time was Fortran, uh, it spewed the whole thing back at you. And I I laugh, but it was painful because it meant hours again to even find the error, a comma or a, a parent or something that was in the wrong place. And now you know what computers can do. It's it's mind-boggling. 
the speed and the complexity of data they can obviously seemingly digest and come up with with something or other. It's true with with AI. I mean, um, AI is now also being used to score people, developmental scoring. And I have great concerns about it. I think the middle will work because we have enough data, but I'm not sure it can do the finer distinctions that I think only a, a sensitive, trained human being can make at the later stages. But that's where we are. I don't know how to... I think, I mean, what I do feel is that we need to start with children Maybe we can make a difference there to really have curricula that include uh, nature observation, going outside and, you know, those kinds of things and bringing plants into the, into the room. You can grow things in a container. It's still different than not having it. That, I would say, yeah, tr let's try and do something for children. Starting with ourselves. Because, yeah, well, that's always the first. Yeah, because you can, you can initiate somebody into something that you haven't done yourself, and at least not very well. Maybe through no, don't. no, I don't mean that. I mean really, yes, but still, create shifting some things in how we educate children and how we give them opportunities to reflect and make mistakes and just play, be imaginative. I hate those new toys. They're all pre-moving and, you know, there's nothing a child can do with them instead of just taking a stick and say, oh, that could be this or that. I want to whack you with this. This is my sword. <laughs> kind of play, real play, where anything can become anything. So maybe, maybe you know, I, I think the, the, you know, the cat is out of the box. There's, we are technological beings oh my god in spades can we can we just kind of give that as a given but can we bring forward wisdom and love you know of one another of the planet of life of all beings i mean these are just these basic perennial values that that make life worth living you know because all the other stuff is yeah it's it's really exciting and and after a certain point but developmentally, eventually that just grows empty. Empty. And you're left with the same, you know, the same existential crises that Moses took to the mountain, you know, that our ancestors always have. You know, is there a God? Is there meaning? How, how do I, how do I walk? How do I walk on the earth? You know, how do I fulfill this thing, this very limited time that I've been giving? How do, how do I, how do I, I fall in love with the good? How do I fall in love with honesty and love and virtue and, and these things that, that all the great traditions ha have, have been teaching us? And, and now we live in this hyper-accelerating technological world. Can we somehow bring those virtues along with us and, and make it a cleaner planet, you know, and, and eliminate poverty? I'm so sick of poverty. There's no damn reason we should have poor people on the planet at this point. It's just... You know, and I know it can't be totally materialistic and just throw welfare checks at everybody and fix everything. It has to be obviously an integral approach to, to buildings for everybody, you know, not just for poor people or disadvantaged people. But can we eliminate that? And can we have fun doing it? You know, isn't it cool to, it's much cooler to give a great present than to receive one. 
you know, again, when you bring back the joy and, and those of us who've been blessed with a lot to find the joy of service and the joy of giving and the, the joy of, of, you know, realizing that we have a limited time in this forum and how, how are we going to make it rock? You know, how are we going to make it matter? How are we going to, you know, shine the light that we know is there because we're all mystics here in this conversation. You know, we've seen that light and uh, how do we bring it forward? Uh, Two thoughts come to mind, A, that, that is certainly true for those of us who are at, I would say, formal operations, who can look at these things, compare these things, and make choices. But a lot of humanity is, in Maslowian terms, at the very, just in survival mode. Do they have even the interest to, to you know, reach out and change things? They may not have the perspective, big enough, perspective they just live in their own little world to try to survive day to day i think we can and there's wonderful efforts all kinds of fields that i read about in architecture how to make more livable cities how or even buildings i mean i can't think at the moment but many many efforts in in that direction coming from from sort of the adult level of understanding reality the modern and later but that that is true and and hopefully i i have faith that we will try and that's part of the beauty of human beings that we do have imagination and intuitions and mm -hmm. dreams and all those things that uh, are different perhaps. We don't know about animals, whether they have the same kind of imagination. But if you just look at the history of development here, the evolution comes into play, then it seems that we have a bit more, certainly more of it than any other creature we so far have found. Mm. Imagination. And again, that we can help children uh, with. Yeah. Yeah. Suzanne, at this stage, you've been researching adult development, psychological well-being for decades now. What, what, do you, what calls you now at this stage? What, what is calling now? To describe adult development more for a lay audience, and that's that. We've just started, we have only a few chapters, but that story about the fable around Walden Pond, mm -hmm. writing it with a young colleague in Sydney, and we meet weekly for an hour or two, ungodly hours, <laughs> because of the time difference. And we have this idea that I'm the resident owl, I'm an old owl, I've traveled, but now I'm just sitting there. And there's this young otter who is on an adventure. He's just curious as hell, but he's not necessarily a deep thinker. He's just traveling. He feels something inside. He wants to he seek something, but he doesn't even know what. And so they encounter each other. And the owl invites, after some conversation, invites the author to stay for a week and go. It happens to be that Walden Pond has eight sort of little 
in, I don't know what you would call it in English, when you look from above on the, on the map, it's not, you know, it's not round and even. It has these things. On each of them is another animal, and each animal represents a different stage. So the, so we travel to these people and have dialogues with them, questions them, find out what it's like to be them. And we focus on the positive, not necessarily the, the lesser parts of it. And at the very end, I hope we'll have a goodbye party for the altar and a sort of convening of all the folks from the lake, around the lake, to, find, to write an agreement with each other of how to live peacefully. It's, a it's in the fantasy style, but it gives me endless joy to work on something like that. So, so you're using a new medium of a fable to introduce developmental stages to a wider audience. Yeah, to a wider audience and a simpler audience. The, my colleague is the head of the, what's it called? You know, the, oh, the Street University in, in Australia. And they have many abuse facilities to, to bring young, mostly young people who are in trouble for addictions, for all kinds of things, you know, violence. They have these residential centers and they have these coaching situations or counseling situations. And maybe even they could read it. We're trying to write it so simply that, that anybody could read it who, who can read or listen. It's a... It's a fantasy a beautiful project i hope it comes to fruition i'm still writing the technical adult development ego development book right now it's with an editor who is what i i call it surgery you know from a hundred thousand i don't know how many words anymore but she'll cut it down so it will be a book of about 250 pages rather than the tome <laughs> I had written. So these are things, and, and, and my work with, with Africa, with the urban hub in Africa, which is really trying to get a sense for Africans to help Africans develop, but from an Ubuntu, from a more African-centered perspective. And I mean, this, you know, the in, in the development goals group, hoping that we can foster that and certainly nothing wrong with having curricula for here for the West. I just also hope to influence just a little bit to open always the door to non-Western ways of being. And then I'm a grandma and I enjoy my five grandchildren. Beautiful. I, no I noticed the joy when you were speaking about your book that you're writing, you know, and it just it brought to mind that we need our poets we need our authors, we need our musicians, we need our artists, you know, and, and they seem to lead the way. It's not going to be one person doing this thing. It's going to be all of us doing what we can in, in what we're called. I like that, to think that way of all of us, that each one of us, even if it's a little bit, it will add up and, and make, hopefully still make a difference. I do need to have faith in humanity. Yeah. And our job is not to be successful. Our job is to do what we're called to do and let yeah. let the bigger mind let things happen yes 
Yes, yes, yes. And I was thinking in the Native American uh, tradition, I learned they, they had a, the wheel of life. It was a developmental circle. They started in the south and went to the west and then the north and ended up in the east. And it was the coyote, the bear, the buffalo, and then you end up the wise person, you know, the eagle at the end. And they had a basic structure, you know, when you're the coyote, you're learning little kid things. When you're a teenager, you're being the bear, you're going inside, you know, and, and finding out who the hell you are. Then when you come out, you know, you're the buffalo that gives your whole being to the people, you know, and once you move that, you're, you're, you, you hold the soul of the tribe, you hold the soul of the people, you become uh, an elder. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that that sentiment that we can teach through fables rather than through complicated abstract words is, is part of that hope, that intention, yes. Well, I appreciate and love you guys for all your brilliant abstract words that you created. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you, Suzanne, for for these wonderful, yeah. You're welcome. And in the end, I really don't know, but I have a few guiding things. I have to, I have faith in nature, I have faith in human beings trying the best they can, wherever they are. And I hope I can continue to contribute in, in small ways. And especially that's true for my own family and grandchildren. Beautiful. Well, I'm so glad you have made the contributions you have and you've touched so many people with your work and <clears throat> it may be abstractions, but there are some abstractions are better than others. <laughs> you're, you're, <laughs> thank oh, you. Yours have been very useful. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And now I love to, love to see that you are, you are you're teaching and, and sharing not only through these some very sophisticated and meaningful theories, but also through through fable, through story, and through, of course, your contacts, your human connections. Suzanne, it's such a gift to dialogue with you. Uh, you have you have your website where uh, some of your writings are available, and uh, soon we'll have, hopefully, uh, soon we'll have, relatively soon we'll have two of your books. Uh, the the text on your developmental work and your fable, uh, the otter and the wise owl, and uh, and it's just a delight to to have been touched by your your work and by you personally. And thank you so much on behalf of us all. Well, thank you for listening to me and also helping me think through because questions from others. And interests always also triggers and moves one's own thinking and feeling ahead. Yes, so thank yes. you for that. And, that. and that's one of the things we're ho hoping to do with this, this podcast, Deep Transformation Self-Society Spirit, is bring people like yourself to explore in real time some of the deeper questions that animate our lives and that, that concern our time. So thank you, Suzanne. Thank Very you, much. John and Roger. I love you both. And I love a lot more than you both, but I love you especially. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.